Hello, everyone, and welcome. I am Joe McManus, president of Sentinel Consulting. Uh, a, this is a Carlton Fields cons construction consultancy, one of four uh, Carlton Fields uh, consultancies. Uh, I'm the host for this podcast today, dealing with very recent federal developments in labor and employment law. I'm very excited to have uh, as my guest today, Ray Van. Uh, she is my partner in Carlton Fields, a shareholder, uh, where she practices in Washington, D.C., in labor and employment law, with an emphasis on EEO, DEI, and federal contract affirmative action compliance. Ray is here today in her capacity as Vice President of Core Triangle Consulting, which is the firm's affiliated HR and organizational risk management consulting company. Core Triangle helps clients with a range of HR, DEI, and other employment-related needs, from the routine to the most unique strategic issues facing businesses and industry right now. Um, I want to start by uh, asking Ray uh, uh, some background information here. There's been a flood of executive office mandates in the last few weeks, and um, so perhaps we can we can look at EEO mandates and and how uh, who's affected by them? Are we dealing with government contractors only? Are we dealing with all employees? Ray, if you could give us some guidance on that, would be wonderful. Absolutely happy to Joe, and uh, thank you for inviting me to participate in this um, important uh, session. So um, who's affected by EEO mandates that come down from the federal government? Um, all employers, just as a general rule, with 15 or more employees are subject to federal EEO and non-discrimination requirements, um, such as Title VII, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, na national origin, sexual orientation, gender identity as well, um, or the ADA, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability. Uh, and there are others. And even smaller employers may be subject to similar rules that come down at the state uh, or local level. Um, but beyond that, certain companies that elect to contract with the federal government are required to comply with additional rules, additional EEO rules and requirements, including, um, in many instances, practicing affirmative action to ensure non-discrimination against certain groups. Typically, those requirements don't kick in until a contractor reaches a certain size in terms of the number of employees or the value of the contract itself. Um, and those thresholds generally will vary from law to law, but that's generally what um, federal contractors are expected to do above and beyond the regular EEO and non-discrimination requirements that um, other companies have to comply with. Ray, how do these mandates come down? Uh, these Are these executive orders issued by the White House or or they come through regulations? Could you give us some guidance there? Sure. So at the federal level, um, laws can be passed, obviously, by con uh, by Congress and signed into law by the president. That certainly is the case with respect to Title VII and the Americans with Disabilities Act and things like that. In the federal contractor context, there are really three main federal laws that contractors need to know about 
one of which was actually created by executive action. So it's an executive order that uh, President Lyndon uh, B. Johnson signed back in 1965. That's executive order 11246. The other two statutes are statutes that were passed by Congress, section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, um, also known as section 503, and then the Vietnam Era Veterans Readjustment Assistance Act, or better known as VEVRA. So those are two statutes. The executive order um, came about as a result, again, as exe- uh, by virtue of executive action um, from uh, President Johnson. So the executive order applies to all federal contractors and subcontractors uh, with direct or federally assisted government construction contracts, as well as supply and service contractors. So they're covered too. Uh, but in the construction context specifically, it applies both to direct and federally assisted construction contracts that are valued in excess of $10,000. So like Title VII, the executive order, Executive Order 11246, prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, and national origin, Um, But beyond that also requires affirmative action to ensure equal employment opportunity, to ensure EEO for women and minorities. So uh, just one point about the executive order. It was, uh, as I said, put into place, issued by President Johnson back in 1965, but it's been amended um, a number of times since then. most recently to incorporate protections for individuals identifying as LGBTQ. Um, As far as Section 503 is concerned, so Section 503 is a part of the Rehabilitation Act, and that prohibits discrimination um, against individuals with disabilities and also requires covered contractors and subcontractors to take affirmative action to employ and advance qualified individuals with disabilities. So it's it's non-discrimination protections are very similar to those of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which apply to all employers that have more than um, 15 employees generally. Um, in the Section 503 context, the non-discrimination requirements apply to contractors who only who have direct contracts that are valued in excess of $15,000. So Section 503 doesn't apply to contractors with only federally assisted construction contracts at all. Um, With respect to Section 503's affirmative action requirements, including the obligation to prepare annually a written affirmative action program or plan, that requirement applies to contractors with both 50 or more employees And again, at least one direct federal contract that's valued at $50,000 or more, okay? Similarly, VEVRA, which prohibits discrimination against certain categories of protected veterans, um, prohibits discrimination on the basis of veteran status and also requires affirmative action to advance veteran uh, employment opportunities. That, too, applies only to direct construction contractors. So uh, if anyone listening is not a direct construction contractor and is not a supply and service contractor, 
um, VEVRA and Section 503 do not apply to them. Um, the thresholds, by the way, for um, under VEVRA for the affirmative action and non-discrimination um, coverage uh, portions only apply to contracts valued at above $150,000. So the thresholds are a little higher there. With respect to affirmative action, those, those requirements don't kick in uh, for contractors with respect to VEVRA um, unless and until they have they meet the $150,000 contract amount threshold and they also have 50 employees. So VEVRA, as the name suggests, has been on the books for decades, over four decades. It was enacted shortly after the Vietnam War. Ironically, just a piece of trivia, um, Vietnam-era veterans no longer are protected veterans under <laughs> VEVRA. They were removed um, by virtue of an amendment to the law back in 2002. But the categories of covered veterans are outlined in the, in the regulations. Well, that's depressing news since <laughs> I was a Vietnam veteran uh, 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 era uh, <laughs> captain in the Air Force. Um, that's so a bit depressing. But speaking about depressing, my federal construction contractor clients are concerned about what we understand to be called, I believe, the corporate scheduling announcement list. Um, can you, does that list exist? Um, are they are they rightfully concerned, and, and what are we talking about there? Yes, so the corporate scheduling announcement list, more uh, fondly known as the CSAL, is a um, listing that is published periodically by the Department of Labor's Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, or OFCCP. So OFCCP is the agency that enforces the requirements of the Executive Order Section 503 and VEVRA. Um, Part of OFCCP's enforcement authority includes the ability to go in and audit government contractor compliance uh, with those three laws and um, others that may apply. Um, that also includes reviewing their AAPs to the extent that they're required to have an AAP and that sort of stuff. So getting back to the CSAL, um, well, let me back up and, and say that for construction contractors, OFCCP has taken a lot of heat over the last few years for um, uneven enforcement or application of the rules to construction contractors. It didn't really have a cogent strategy for selecting contractors for audit. And then when it did conduct audits, they were not done um, always in a consistent and even um, manner. So what OFCCP has been doing for the last couple of years is really moving towards an audit process that is much more consistent um, across contractor types. So supply and service, as well as construction contractor. Um, but given some important differences in obviously the applicable requirements, um, supply and service and construction audits aren't always going to operate in the same way. So getting back to the CSAL, um, as part of OFCCP's sort of revamp of its construction contractor enforcement program, it began to include, really for the first time, 
um, construction contractors on the CSAL. Uh, and the CSAL identifies contractor locations that have been selected for compliance evaluation. So it is a courtesy notice that the agency gives, um, really providing contractors with a 45-day heads up before OFCCP starts sending out scheduling letters. So in general, uh, every contractor that appears on a CSAL will eventually be audited. It may not be on day one, but typically those lists exist until every single contractor has been hit uh, or scheduled for an audit. Um, the scheduling letter itself will inform the selected contractor of which location in the in the context of a construction contractor. So we're talking about the geographic area that's been selected for review and then um, will include ad additional information that the agency is seeking to review as part of um, the audit. So the scheduling letter itself is important because it signals the starting sure. point of the audit and it also um, sets a time frame within which information is to be supplied to the agency. Well, what does the contractor do when when it's uh, he gets the uh, the notice and, uh, and and signaling the start of the audit? What what is the contractor to do at that stage? Um, call his lawyer. Um, <laughs> call his uh, HR people. What, what, what is what's what, what's what's your advice along those lines? All of the above, right? Um, as a practical matter, thirty days typically is not enough time for a contractor to compile and to prepare all of the information that it's going to need to collect to send off to OFCCP. So going back to the CSAL, it's important to the extent that you can to take advantage of that 45-day um, heads up to start getting your record keeping and reporting house in order. For example, um, contractors that are subject to the executive order section 503 and VEVRA um, are going to receive as part of the scheduling letter three separate itemized listings. Mm -hmm. So these documents outline, again, the information that OFCCP wants to see. Um, as for those specific items, the executive order, for example, has 16 um, requests on the itemized listing that seek extensive and sometimes voluminous payroll and employment transaction records for all construction trade employees who worked in that particular selected geographic area over the prior 12-month period. That's the other important aspect to the scheduling letter. It sets the 12-month look-back period. So you know how far back you have to go in terms of pulling records and information. The Section 503 and VEVRA lists uh, each contain nine items that have to be submitted, including copies of the relevant written AAPs. So something that I didn't mention at the outset is that for construction contractors subject to the executive order, unlike supply and service contractors, there's no obligation to maintain a written affirmative action plan, mm -hmm. but their compliance consists with meeting these 16 affirmative action steps that are set out in the regulations. Uh, and they are largely reflected in uh, the itemized listing and the type of information that uh, OFCCP will request. So in terms of what 
OFCCP looks for during the audit, they're focusing their efforts on the contractor's compliance with the specific EEO and affirmative action requirements set out in the regulations um, with respect to the executive order of EVRA or the regulations enforcing the executive order of EVRA in Section 503. Um, for purposes of the executive order, we're looking at goals and timetables, so progress towards participation rate goals, which are set in the statutes, I mean in the um, regulations. They haven't changed since uh, 1980. They're the same as they mm. were when they were published in the Federal Register um, back in um, the late 70s and, and um, again in 1980. But with respect to females, contractors are expected to make progress towards meeting a 6.9% female participation rate goal. And with respect to minorities, the goal um, changes depending on the metropolitan area, statistical metropolitan statistical area that we're talking about. And those are set up in the OFCCP's regulations as well. You know, you mentioned compliance. They're seeking evidence of compliance. Well, I, I can imagine a situation where a particular contractor in a particular geographical area is not in what OFCCP believes is full compliance. I mean, wh where are we now? Are we in a penal situation or are we in a situation where OFCCP is, is urging action or demanding action within a certain period of time? What happens? Because, again, there, the regulations are comprehensive, they're confusing, okay? And uh, so what is, a, what, what is one to do, okay, with that? And, and, and what's the effect of uh, you're not being in total compliance with that? Right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna offer you three words, good faith efforts. That is what OFCCP expects from federal government contractors to um, exercise good faith efforts to achieve equal employment opportunity uh, to ensure non-discrimination and to advance EEO through their affirmative action efforts. The participation rate goals, for example, those are not quotas. They are essentially goals that uh, you're supposed to use good faith efforts to try to achieve. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got a contractor that's woefully out of compliance, um, an audit likely will... Um, or could result in some notice of violations, right? Mm -hmm. Technical violations or substantive violations. Technical violations typically <clears throat> consist of the record-keeping stuff. You failed to um, keep accurate records of your applicants, or uh, you failed to maintain a written affirmative action plan when you were supposed to. The more significant violations are the substantive violations, and, and those typically are where there are indicators of uh, discrimination mm -hmm. against women, men, a particular minority group, minorities in the aggregate, that sort of thing. And whenever you have a substantive discrimination violation that OFCCP has found, it is authorized and often will seek um, victim-specific relief mm. um, in the form of monetary damages uh, as part of a conciliation agreement. Now. Um, the agency also has spoken for many decades now about 
wanting to provide technical assistance to contractors, especially newer contractors that aren't as familiar with this whole process. So the agency says, and often will try to help, especially newer contractors, understand how to better comply, even through the course of an audit. Okay, so it's not a malevolent uh, process we're going through here, where they're on a quota system to find contractors not in compliance. I mean, and I take it that the administrators there that are running OFCCP now are aligned with that, with that philosophy, and that they're looking more to have contractors understand where they're falling down and and uh, encourage them, perhaps with another audit, <laughs> to um, uh, comply? Generally, and certainly um, most definitely on paper, but the enforcement philosophy of OFCCP tends to change depending on the enforcement philosophy of the administration in charge. Mm -hmm. So under the Trump administration, OFCCP certainly took its enforcement charge and mandate very seriously, but it also um, introduced more of the compliance assistance and carrot versus stick approach to compliance than um, we typically have seen in, in some democratic administrations. Mm -hmm. uh, the Biden administration, OFCCP, is being headed up by a woman by the name of Jenny Yang, who's former chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. She's also a former plaintiff's class action attorney with one of the largest, most preeminent uh, plaintiff's class action law firms in the country. And she was actually counsel of record in the Dukes versus Walmart litigation that went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme mm -hmm. Court, focusing on gender pay inequality and, and pay discrimination. She is very much focused on gender and race pay equity and systemic discrimination. Uh, because that's very helpful to our construction clients out there, knowing that that, that, that is her focus and that ought to be their focus. Yes. Right? And I take it that if someone fails to submit to an audit <laughs> or comes out woefully short on compliance, I take it that there's some draconian downstream results that can, that can occur. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Contractors are obligated to submit to an audit. If OFCCP comes knocking, you cannot say no one is home and turn them away. There are pretty severe potential consequences for doing that, okay? Failure to submit to an audit can and typically will have um, pretty serious consequences for the contractor, including immediate referral for administrative enforcement by OFCCP, which means basically you're being sent uh, into administrative litigation before um, the administrative review board or the Office of Administrative Law Judges um, to begin with. And OFCCP can request and seek a range of penalties for uh, a contractor, even in a denial of access case, so non-substantive, really procedural, including contract suspension, cancellation, or even contract debarment. So you may recall the big Baker DC case that came down a few years ago. That's what happened there. That was a denial of access case. So the contractor challenged OFCCP's legal authority to conduct the audit, and it had good reasons for doing so. But what it did was refuse uh, OFCCP access, uh, which 
led OFCCP to file an administrative complaint with the Office of Administrative um, Law Judges, which went to a hearing. Not surprisingly, the ALJ came down on the side of OFCCP. Um, You know, administrative law judges and sort of even judges tend to defer um, pretty heavily to federal agencies um, and their interpretation of the law. Mm. But that contractor did pursue an appeal um, and eventually got the ruling reversed after what was likely a very costly litigation um, process. So again, um, you certainly can refuse OFCCP access to your records or refuse to participate in an audit, but there will be consequences. Mm-hmm. Well, let's switch over to COVID. <laughs> Because it won't, it won't go away. All right. And just like government agencies like CDC are under attack for potentially overstepping their grounds. I mean, the executive office seems to be throwing out right to work plans, et cetera. Can you give us some, some, uh, some guidance on, um, on, uh, where we're going with that and how, how we should be, how we should be dealing with this? Yeah, so um, the most recent major action that was taken by the administration came down just before Labor Day, um, where uh, the administration issued a couple of executive orders and made an announcement with respect to policy changes in the area of COVID. So, um, but let me step back. So back in July, at the end of July, the White House issued this fact sheet announcing new safety protocols for federal workers and on-site employees of federal contractors. This was designed to step up efforts to prevent the spread of COVID-19, especially in light of the Delta variant and how dangerous and, and widespread that had become. So what the facts sheet said was that federal government employees and on-site contractors would be asked essentially to attest to their vaccination status, and anyone who failed or refused to do so would have to, one, wear a mask at work all the time, regardless of where they were working, two, maintain physical distancing, of course, from other workers and visitors, and then three, um, and probably one of the more controversial aspects uh, to this, would be that they would have to comply with a weekly or twice weekly COVID screening test requirement. And then of course there would be um, this White House fact sheet announced restrictions on those folks' ability to um, travel for business and things like that. What was unusual about the fact sheet was that there wasn't an executive order that came with it. Typically those types of fact sheets are issued as part of an executive action, announcement of an executive action or new executive order. Um, And so there wasn't anything that was immediately executable um, that came along with that fact sheet. But obviously we were expecting something more to come. So that did come last week in the form of, and just speaking to the federal contractor piece, an executive order called the Executive Order on Ensuring Adequate COVID Safety Protocols for federal contractors. So that was signed by President Biden um, actually shortly after Labor Day on September 9th um, last week. Before we get into that, because it's, it, it's um, I want to get into the details of that of that particular September 9 order, but 
Um, on-site employees of federal contractors. Well, um, I think a construction contractor could figure that out. The contractor is doing a job on a particular site. And so, it, but what about, I, I can see that as a very expansive term. Do you have a, a contract and you're a supplier to the, the federal government? Are you providing services to the federal government? I mean, are we including all of these people? And, right. and uh, is a, if a law firm is under contract with the federal government to do assist them, for example, in a labor issue or or to provide advice on a uh, um, EEOC matter. Right. Are, are, is the law firm subject likewise to, to this um, executive act, which is being. It's been signed on September 9th. You're not going to like this answer, but uh, we don't know. <laughs> and we don't know because. The fact sheet said was very detailed and said one thing, but the executive order was very, very um, short on specifics and details. In fact, the executive order essentially said um, we're going to require certain safety protocols be put into place for federal contractors, but only after the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force issues guidance that spells all of these things out, identifies key definitions, like what an on-site um, employee or contractor is, identifies the specific requirements. Um, the other thing that's notable about the executive order is that it doesn't mention the word vaccinations. It does not purport to mandate vaccinations, whereas the fact sheet talked specifically about vaccinations and testing and things like that. So what the executive order has done is left those details to the task force. But even with respect to the guidance that the task force is going to issue, the um, executive order 14042 says specifically that um, the guidance won't become effective unless and until the White House Office of um, Management and Budget, OMB, approves it and signifies its approval um, in a notice published in the Federal Register. Mm -hmm. All of this is supposed to happen by <laughs> next Friday, September 24th. I don't know um, whether it will. I will say, though, that yesterday the task force updated some FAQs that it has on the website um, specific to federal contractors as well. So federal employees, but then there's a section that talks about federal um, contractors. And, you know, one of the questions that it has on here is, can agencies incorporate vaccination requirements into contracts that are not covered by this new executive order? And it repeats basically what the executive order said, which is, we strongly recommend agencies to do so, but clearly it's not establishing a mandate. And they say, you got to wait on the guidance that is forthcoming. I imagine the lobbyists are lined up pretty hard with the... In the executive in the executive office building. Um, okay, what about federal grants? Okay, because we, none of our clients are, you, especially if infrastructure bill ever gets passed. Okay, you're going to see a lot of grant money coming out, especially for water, uh -huh. sewer, etc. I mean, or does this go to the grantees, uh, the uh, the various uh, public municipalities, the agencies of a state or a local? Uh, where, do, where does it where does it start and end? Okay, with, yeah. with grants. Well, that's a good question. Um, the although the 
um, executive order was pretty short on most details. It did specify um, certain exemptions. And so federal grants um, are excluded from the executive order, as are um, contracts or subcontracts whose value is equal to or less than the federal acquisition requisition simplified acquisition threshold, which right now is $250,000. So for even for federal contractors with relatively smaller contracts valued at less than $250,000, these rules, whenever they're published, are not going to apply to them. But getting back to your specific questions, um, the executive order states specifically that they will not apply the requirements will not apply to federal grants. Okay. Um, dealing with federal construction contracts on a daily basis, okay, we're, we're immersed in FAR, federal acquisition regulations. Where does, is, is FAR going to have a place at the table here? Are we going to, because that's where the first, the first place we go, okay, with the, uh, on any government contracting issues. Absolutely. So the executive order actually directs the FAR Council to, um, you know, address the language. So one of the key requirements on the, the executive order is that um, contractors will have to include a basically a COVID clause in their contract. And contracting officials, obviously, for, on the agency side, will incorporate a COVID clause mm -hmm. like the EO clause mm -hmm. that is contained in contracts that sets out the requirements yep. that are going to be fleshed out. So the executive order says, FAR Council, you need to um, revise the FAR to incorporate this new um, COVID clause requirement, essentially. The um, <laughs> the, the action which uh, is due next next Friday, all right? Um, do you expect it to be also flowing down to the subcontractors, either as a uh, as a, as published in FAR, or um, is there going to be any obligation on the contractor to flow it down to the uh, to the subcontractor? Absolutely, there is definitely the executive order specifies that there shall be essentially a flow down clause requirement that contractors are going to have to include the clause um, in their subcontracts as well. Um, finally, I guess we want to talk about OSHA. <laughs> OSHA uh, has been, has been, um, some ways wildly erratic at the same time, very, very, very busy. Okay. Um, trying to uh, issue regulations and also to enforce, um, uh, their requirements and, and closing down some certain job sites also. Okay. Where, where are we with regard to OSHA and public and private and, and private construction contracts. Very, very interesting. So on the same day that the president issued um, the federal contractor COVID executive order, uh, the White House announced that it had directed OSHA to issue an emergency temporary standard, so an ETS, that would apply to all employers with 100 or more employees, including federal contractors, construction contractors, supply and service, and so forth, that would mandate vaccinations or weekly testing. So this um, statement was much more, and, and directive to OSHA was much more specific than the executive order with respect to mandating vaccinations or alternatively weekly testing. Um, what's 
also interesting about that directive is that um, the White House, you know, wants this done yesterday. And when you think back to the ETS that came out earlier in the year that applies to healthcare um, companies and the healthcare industry, that's flowed from another executive order, but it took weeks for OSHA um, to write that ETS. And the expectation, I think, um, even if it's not, it hasn't been written down anywhere, um, the expectation is that OSHA and the task force are going to issue guidance around the same time frame. Um, so we're talking a couple of weeks from now, and I just don't see how that can happen as a practical matter. As you pointed out, OSHA inspectors are out there on sites, on work sites, you know, enforcing what's already on the books. It's going to be a very heavy lift for OSHA to develop this ETS that's going to apply basically to a huge universe of employers mm-hmm. um, while also continuing to enforce what's what's currently on the books. Yeah, and OSHA was the subject of our webinar Right. Early, at the beginning of COVID, we had a, we had OSHA representatives there on how they were struggling to deal with it. And it seems like, you know, now you're talking about directions to for all employees with 100 people or more to get vaccinated or tested. It's um, it's going to be significant. And is this you think there's going to be an overstep by OSHA, like like the CDC mandates that are coming down? Is it going to be tested? I imagine it will be tested in the courts. Oh, sure. Okay. I, oh, sure. People are already positioning or organizations and advocates are already positioning themselves to um, challenge whatever comes out of OSHA. And um, it'll be interesting uh, because there's still so many questions to be answered, separate and apart from the ones that we've heard so much about. You know, who's who's going to pay? Who's going to pay for these weekly tests? If you have a worker who um, refuses to attest to his or her vaccination status and therefore presumably is now required to submit to weekly testing, is the employer going to pay for it? That, you can imagine, can and will become very, very costly in a very short period of time, potentially. Yeah, and I had read somewhere that um, that this uh, standards uh, <laughs> may require a, a, an employer to pay Paid leave yes. to people uh, for uh, I don't know what for I guess for COVID recovery or yes right and so another question is whether OSHA even has the legal authority yeah. to enforce that type of mandate yeah. yeah someone decides that they're not going to get vaccinated because they don't believe the government they don't believe the government so they don't get vaccinated and they end up in the hospital and yet. OSHA is demanding that that employer pay that, pay that um, employee throughout the entire period of hospitalization. Well, hopefully it would not be months or years. Hopefully whatever period of, of paid leave is mandated would be shorter. But yes, I, you know, and just to riff off of your example, if an employee is out for a couple of weeks because of infection or whatever it is, they get fired they sue the employer for failing to have provided protected paid leave during that period of time. Mm-hmm. Who does the complaint go to OSHA and how does OSHA enforce that? 
or is there going to be some coordination between OSHA and DOL or some agency, other agency, um, to enforce compliance? It's it's there's so much that's still to be known. Yeah. Well, I think I think that um, what we've learned today, at least what I've learned today, is that we need to have a a part two <laughs> of, of this podcast after uh, next Friday. <laughs> Okay, and thereafter, as as things beginning to shake out, all right, so we can give further guidance to to our contractors, federal subcontracting and non-federal over a hundred over a hundred employees. There's going to be so many issues that are that are um, going to be ripe for discussion. So um, let's commit ourselves to do that for our listeners. Absolutely, and, and we will um, we'll take care of that. Um, any other final thoughts here, Ray? Uh, I would just say. Um, especially immediately after the executive orders came out, there was a lot of doom and gloom, sort of sky is falling analysis and media coverage. I would just say to take a step back and breathe. We don't know what the requirements are going to look like. We have no idea what um, is being developed or formulated at this point in time. So we just have to take a wait and see approach. Um, position ourselves to be receptive to what we're going to have to do, but don't panic at this point. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure that the listeners are going to be, have a number of questions that, that uh, they have now, or will have shortly, shortly thereafter. And uh, they can get in touch with you, uh, Van at carltonfields.com or McManus at carltonfields.com or uh, reach out to you at Core Triangle uh, or me at uh, Sentinel Consulting. And uh, we'd be happy to, to help out. But thank you, everybody, for listening today. And um, we'll see you perhaps in a um, short month. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye now. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation.